the Mark Priest podcast, anytime, anywhere. This conversation was recorded in September 2022 with Ian Edward, not Edwards, who is a serial investor and M&A specialist in the UK hospitality sector. He's brokered numerous deals in this space, including Lockfine to Green King in 2007 for 70 million and Geronimo Inns to Young's for 60 million in 2010. After graduating from Oxford University, Ian worked in the boom times of investment banking in the early 80s before getting involved in the hospitality sector in the early 2000s. He's held numerous non-exec roles, including at Duke Street Capital, The Tasker, Brasserie Barco and Geronimo Inns. He was co-founder of Hippo Inns, which was sold to Stonegate in January 2022 and is a senior leisure advisor for Clearwater International Corporate Finance. Currently, Ian is an investor in Pizza Pilgrim's Thunderbird Fried Chicken and most recently in Scipio Group, to name but a few. Should you have any questions for him, he can be contacted at ian at edwardassociates.com. That's ian, I-A-N, at edwardassociates.com or Ian Edward, director of Incipio, on his LinkedIn profile. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy listening to this great conversation with Ian. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Mark. How are you? I'm very well, despite all the um, all the things that are going on in our sector. I'm feeling pretty good. It's been a nice summer, fantastic weather, um, and most of the business I'm involved in seems to be doing well. So, from that point of view, I'm pretty positive. Good stuff. And I suppose um, good place to start. Really, um, it would just be how you keep yourself. Motivated, um, given how successful you've been over the over the years, lots of people probably in your position would just prefer to be on the golf course at this point. How how do you keep your arm in, and how do you keep yourself motivated? Well, I mean, I, I think it's a great sector to be involved in. It's a lot of fun. Um, I work with great people, so I've been lucky enough to be uh, in partnership with Rupert Cleveley for a number of years, and we've been involved in a number of businesses together, all the way back to when I was on the board of Geronimo with him. Um, through uh, Pizza Pilgrims, which we both uh, got behind right at the start when they were trading in um, in uh, Broadway Street, Street Market, and um, we backed them from there with some mates, and uh, we've been involved ever since. And it's a great team, great to see the team develop. The business has got obviously much bigger, uh, but still doing fantastic things for its customers, which after all is, is why we're all in this. So, I suppose really the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is is trying to help businesses grow, um, working with people who are interesting, have got loads of ideas, and are doing things I couldn't do. As simple as that. I couldn't run any of these businesses. I've never run a business in my life. Sure. And, and how, do you, how do you find these businesses? How do you get put in touch with them? Or is it just over the years you've built up a network of, of contacts? Yeah, I think it's, it's a bit of both. There, there are people who come to me and say, can we have a chat? And we have a chat. And if, if I like them... Uh, I'll try and help him in any way I can. And then sometimes I get involved as an investor and then get involved as a director and then try and help the business grow, um, really focusing, I suppose, from my point of view on on sort of five things, which are, are people, property, uh, funding, which includes sort of every type of financing and, and, and how to grow the business, strategy, 
Um, and the other one I've completely forgotten, which is rather embarrassing, really, but there we are. It's okay, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure it'll come back to I'm sure we'll, on chatting. I'm sure it will come back. Yeah. So are they, and how do you, how do you approach each of those? So how do you, when you, when you see a new business or you get told about a new business, what are you looking for? What, are, what's the main things, the main secret sauce? What are the things that tick the box for you and how do you approach them? That's a really good question. I, I think you have to assume there are certain givens that, the person you're going to get behind and back and support has got masses of motivation, good ideas, very determined. You get all those sort of things you kind of take for granted. One thing that I think is really interesting that I look for is, is self-awareness. So I think for a lot of founders, they um, have certain phenomenal skills and they're great at developing certain parts of the business, but actually Leisure is retail. Our leisure retail, it, it's detail, it's it's relentless, it's every single day getting the shifts right, getting the people in the right place, getting a product there, delivering a great service to customers. And for some founders, entrepreneurs, that's actually quite a boring part of the business. And as it gets bigger, it's not really where their strengths are. So are they aware enough of how far their limitations, where, where their limitations are and how far they can go as the person driving the ship 100%? And if they, if they are people who you think can get that, and maybe they will make the whole journey themselves, maybe they'll be like a, um, I don't know, an Alex Riley or something like that, or, or, or your boss, for instance. Um, but on the other hand, for some of them, they're going to need help. And if they don't see that they need help, then they'll probably fail. And I'm afraid if you look back over the years, there are a number of, um, of businesses in our sector which you'd say that was potentially a really good business, but ultimately the person who founded it stayed too long. And as a result, mm-hmm. um, it got into a, a, you know, various kinds of problems and, and never made it, which is a shame. Yeah, but I, that's, so, so for me, self-awareness is really important. And I think you can, after a period of time, I think you can see who, who is pretty honest about themselves and honest about their own Abilities. I mean, I, I know there's loads of things I can't do and I try and focus on the things that, that I can do and keep out of the discussions where I really don't think I've got much to add. Sure. And it, yeah, it's something that I've, I've seen quite a few times, especially when you have a business that's, that's founder-led, that they, can, they take that business to a certain size, but then to move it up to that ne- next level, that next number of sites, they need that level of support around them. They need that team to come in and, and help because it's very unusual that you find somebody that's got the skill set across operations, finance, marketing, and the whole the whole set. It's very unusual. A great example is Brandon. So Brandon is a wonderful, crazy American who's just a delightful bloke. And this is Brandon? Brandon Stevens. Brandon Stevens. So, so Brandon founded Tortilla, brilliant idea, Great business, but he probably saw in himself not the right person to take it to 50, 60, 70 sites and mm-hmm. did brilliantly in bringing in Richard Morris. I've been yep. involved with Richard Morris yep. when I was involved in selling Lot Fine for Mark Derry to Green King. And, and Richard's a great guy and he's just the perfect foil to Brandon. And if you look at how that business has evolved, it's a sort of textbook case of how to do it if you don't personally think you're the right person to drive it to that point. And I think it's been a great partnership between the two of them. It's, you know, it, it will prosper, even if at the moment the stock market's probably the hardest place to be, but it, it will yeah. prosper. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, a, it's a great example, Tortilla. One, I mean, they, they managed to get their IPO away, I want to say September, October mm-hmm. last year. There was a very small window and they just managed to 
to get through it and and yeah i'm sure it will it will come good in the end i mean i have a, a bit of a problem with the window so so you know, i've been involved my, my, my background was in, in finance and investment banking and everyone talks about the window and the window is to get it done and get it away mm-hmm. and raise that money but that's fine for people who are exiting but actually if you're going to run it being in a small public company in our sector is not an easy place to be and i think you know there's a lot of people around who've been stuck in a position for a long time um you know the purpose of being a public company is obviously great for liquidity so if you look at what happened in covid a lot of the big public companies and a lot of the ones that were you know had a strong shareholder base managed to raise money very quickly to bolster the balance sheets Mm -hmm. and the same happened in 2008 i think the problem is if you're a smaller company you get stuck in that place where um the idea of, of issuing options, particularly to your management team, to try and drive the business forward and incentivize them, if all falls flat, if the share price goes backwards, and they look at the, at the value of their options every day, and it might be very, very little, in which case it's hardly a motivator. Um, and the other reason, of course, is to raise money. Now, if you're a small public company and your share price hasn't gone particularly well because nobody's very interested, you haven't got big institutions in there, when it comes to raising money, you haven't got that base to do it. So. There's a, there's a sort of graveyard of, of small leisure public companies that really you, you kind of ask yourself, why are they going there? Because in fact, if you look at private equity, private equity gets it right and you get the right team and the right backer. Um, it's a phenomenal way of growing a business and it has a very dynamic um, structure. If you have a good private equity player behind you and a good board, you go from one board meeting to another with clear objectives, moving forward, driving the business. I thought John was a good example of that, where we only had six people on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, Penta were terrific. And we had a great chairman who was a sort of very, very wise man who'd been around the pub sector forever and would stop us making any silly mistakes and help us in doing some of the things that were, were different. Like, for instance, going into Westfield, the bull at Westfield, that was, was a, a completely new thing for a pub company to do. So I think if you get the right board and you get the right private equity, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful way of driving the business forward. Sadly, what happens with private equity sometimes is that once people start making a lot of money in a sector, and, and casual signing was a great case in point where people were making 30 to 35% return on capital on new sites. So private equity came in, put a lot of money behind businesses, and in many cases grew them far too quickly because the computer said, if you make a 35% return, then you should be doing 10 sites instead of four. Sure, and, and, they, course, and they, they get the data as well, and it says they can do 200 of these across the country. In, exactly, yeah. and everybody's got the same data, so everybody yeah. goes to the same place, mm-hmm. and you end up in places like Tunbridge Wells with far too many sites, and it's yeah. all a bit of a mess, because actually every single little town is its own micro-market, and it's just like, it's just like economics in a big national scale in a little town. If you put new sites in there, they probably grow the market by a little bit. But if you put too many of them in, then they'll grow it by a little bit more. But the capacity's gone up so much that everyone's yeah. fighting the same thing. You've got a market share issue, and everybody starts to fall away. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that a lot in in restaurants in uh, places like currently Cheltenham. Um, Cheltenham's had 20, 25 new restaurants open in the last year. You know, think about the number of seats that that is that you have to then make up. Yeah, Tunbridge Wells is a good example. Tunbridge Wells, the actual the, the high street has been retail aspect of the high street in Tunbridge Wells have been decimated, which has not helped either. So 
lots of dynamics at play. Yeah, I mean, Cheltenham's interesting because in, in Brasserie Blanc, when, I mean, we were both involved in it. I mean, that Cheltenham site was an absolute phenomenal yeah, site. And there were a few other people I knew in Cheltenham who were making loads of money. And of course, what you said is absolutely right. If you open 25 more sites, everyone's going to suffer. Yeah. Just, yeah. just kind of obvious. But unfortunately, um, you know, we had this big clear out where, where we went through a whole bunch of restructurings in the sector from, you know, over the last five or six years before COVID. Um, but there's a lot of businesses still around that probably wouldn't be around if we didn't have the opportunity to do CBAs, which has obviously kept a number of people alive who, to some extent, maybe shouldn't be. Yeah, we, we saw a few of them. We saw a few of them start to creep in around. 2017 to 2019, probably pre-COVID. Then COVID came along and everyone, lots of people sorted their balance sheet out. Um, maybe you can just talk to us about your thoughts on that through COVID and using those CVAs as a, a mechanism to sort, sort your balance sheet out, reduce your rents. Well, uh, if you believe in the law of unintended consequences, legally, that is an option for people to pursue. So they do, because obviously it gives them an opportunity. They can get 75% of their um landlords on side they can get a significant rent reduction but it's an artificial way of controlling the market so for instance if you do everything right if you grow in the right way with the right kind of assets and you suddenly find yourself next door to someone who's made a whole load of mistakes either they've over leveraged they've grown too fast they've done a number of stupid things that they shouldn't have done and suddenly they're they're, they're competing off half the rent you pay and you kind of go well that's not really a market that's not a fair market and that's very frustrating for people because obviously, if they start trading off a, a much lower rent, they might be able to do things on pricing. And then we get back into that dreadful, dreadful thing of discounting, mm-hmm. which is what has done in enormous damage to our sector over, over the last 25 years. Yeah, yeah. As soon as people start discounting, and then the guy next door starts discounting, it's just a, a, it's a it's race a, to the bottom. It's a very hard carousel to, to, to get off once you're on it. And once you have your like-for-like comparatives as well, with with your discounting, it's super hard to get off of it. Um, Especially for those pizza pasta chains that all started doing it. Well, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, Pizza Express was the first casual dining business, I would say, in our country. And I think it was a fantastic thing. Peter Boyzo created this amazing business. And if you go to Pizza Express now, you still get a great pizza. I mean, you know, I've been eating Pizza Express pizzas for goodness how long. but of course, when you've got a margin that in their case was sort of mid-high, I mean, really, at one point it was probably mid-80s, if not higher, then you can discount. And you know you can discount because you know you've got a bigger margin. You can play that game against your competitors around you. But ultimately, if you get into a situation where, you know, Johnny is sitting in the restaurant paying a full price and he sees the bloke next to him paying half price, that just doesn't work. Yeah, we got, we got into a situation as well, I think, where... The, the waiting staff were if if you didn't use your discount they'd be they'd be telling you you know you can get your discount and give me the give me the give me a larger tip instead so, you know cut it cut it that way yeah. so so yeah I mean it's it's fraught with problems but um, and of course you've now mentioned the tip board which is very interesting um, yeah I haven't heard too much more on that recently there was an announcement around October time that something was coming maybe something last month that they're still looking at it, but well, I haven't seen I, anything in terms of say, legislation. Other, but... A few other problems to deal with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, I know in our sector, we always think that we are the only people who need to be looked after. But, um, you know, the trunk has gone to the bottom of the queue. But the trunk's a massive issue, a massive issue, because at some point it is going to come back. And there's no 
simple answer to how you deal with it, particularly when you think of how large the sums of money are. Yeah. And they can, yeah. you know, particularly at a time like this when, when people are dealing with diabolical problems like energy crisis, it must be very tempting for some people to try and bolster their P&Ls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So to come back round to, we, we touched on IPOs a little bit, but um, I think one of the businesses I think that, that stands out for me is is lounges who have, the, the quality of that business and what they've done in terms of the rollout has been so strong. Uh, I think it's just a good example that one, that they must be looking at their share price and wondering what's going on because it's such good business. Yet since they've IPO'd, the share price is, I think it's comparable or has gone backwards a bit and, for all that work, it must be, you know, it must be quite um, quite hard to look at that. Well, I think particularly when you consider how many sites they've put on since they came yeah, exactly. to the market and how well they seem to have performed. I mean, obviously, COVID has made all of that very difficult to judge. But my judgment from the outside and from talking to, to people in that business is that the, the business is going really well. Very frustrating for them. And mm-hmm. I think if you look at the sector... There are businesses that are under pressure uh, in the business and the share prices has reflected that. But I think with lounges, it's a great business. It's in a lot of markets where it has very, very little competition. And therefore, they seem to have been pretty much hit with the same stick as everybody else, but they probably shouldn't have been. So if you were sitting here trying to do a podcast about share tips, then, I mean, lounges (laughs) would be pretty much at the top of that list, possibly... With, with Greg's, which is still the most amazing and fantastic yeah, business. Yeah, it's a great business. Business yeah. that from the outside, you just you just have to admire it in every way. Wonderful business. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, moving on then, I think it'd be really useful to get into a little bit of detail about how you got into this world of, of hospitality. And yeah. I think I read somewhere in my notes that you, you started off at uh, Winchester College. Uh, and how did you go from there via the path of Oxford to into the world of hospitality? Can you just navigate the path for us and connect the dots? Well, I mean, I, I didn't go anywhere near it for a very long time. So I, I came out of university and went straight into investment banking, went straight to New York from London in 1982, which is just the most wonderful thing to do, to go and live in New York when you're 23. I mean, you couldn't ask for more. So it's a wonderful place to be. And, and it, was a very, uh, it was a very rough city at that time. It was a lot of fun. A lot of um, lot of quite scary stuff going on out there, but it was an amazing place to be. And they love the English for some strange reason. They still <laughs> seem to think if you've got an English accent, you must be special. But you know, long may that continue. And it still seems to now. It's very interesting. It's very strange. But anyway, so I, I went from there, did a couple of years in America, a year in Germany, came back to London. Um, all, all in investment banking at this all point. All in investment banking and then um, leverage debt. So I was doing leverage debt. Um, and my first boss in London was a guy called Gordon Bonneman, who is one of the legends of private equity, who ended up uh, running Charterhouse Development Capital, did amazing deals in our sector, things like Garner Merchant, where they made a fortune. And, um, and the investment bank that, that you were at was? This is Bankers Trust. Mm-hmm. It was a, an American bank. Uh, Bankers Trust was, was very well run until the really super clever people came in and started doing credit default swaps and prime level swaps and everything else. And they eventually blew the bank up, which is a bit sad because really, uh, they got too clever by half and ended up getting taken over by Deutsche Bank. I'd left long before that and gone to what is now Bridgepoint, um, mm-hmm. which um, a number of the people who were there back in the mid eighties are still running it, are there and running it, people like William Jackson. Um, fantastic business. And yeah, it's got a really good reputation. At, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, they've, they've gone from being a, 
a mid-market private equity house to a broad-based alternative asset business and brilliantly run. Therefore, I mean, they're another one who you'd probably say their share price doesn't really reflect the quality of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a, a great, a great business. And and so I went from there to, um, we, we uh, actually, funnily enough, we tried to, we set up a large buyout business um, in Cannes. Because in those days, back in the mid 80s, a large buyout was five million pounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you ge- genuinely, there wasn't a buyout business. There was lots of little investments being made in businesses. 3i were a dominant player in the sector. And um, we set up a large buyout business to go and do what was then really you know, big deals. I mean, at that point, you know, 50 to 200 million pounds was a really big deal. So we went to the board of NatWest to underwrite Compass. And Compass was a 160 million pound deal. It ends up with three FTSE 100 chief execs out of that business. Uh, which is Jerry Robinson, Francis Mackay, and Charles Allen. It's now an over thirty billion pound business, and unfortunately, the board in that West turned it down and did the most moronic deal that's probably ever been done, which was the Blue Arrow rights issue, which was an eight hundred and thirty million pound rights issue, and it brought the bank down. I mean, it destroyed the bank. It was it, ridiculous. When you look at the two businesses, you think, how could anybody be that foolish? I mean, I was twenty five, twenty six at the time. I'm not going to influence anybody on that decision, but it was a terrible, <laughs> terrible decision. And, you know, NatWest ended up getting taken over by RBS and the rest is history. Um, but a, a, as a result of that, we said, well, we're, that's not going to work. We, if, we, if we can't do that deal, we're, we're just going to break up and, and move our separate ways. In fact, one of the four guys was was Stan Fink, who's now Lord Fink, who ended up running Man. I mean, it was a group of four people. Three of them were really, really talented. And then I was the sort of the bank carrier. Um, so... Um, we set up a little buy, a, a little M and A business within Cathy NetWest, and the first deal we got involved in was a bingo business up in the northwest in Warrington, called um, Stretton Leisure, owned by Green and Whitley, which was a big um, pub business with a brewery and and Vladivar vodka, various other things. And they thought we'll get out of bingo because we've got another things to deal with. So we sold this bingo business, and it was great fun. I mean, it was a fantastic. It was a little business made about. Eight or nine hundred thousand pounds, and we sold it for eighteen and a half million pounds. We thought this is wow. not fun. Okay. And at that point, nobody specialised in M and A in a sector. And I thought, well, you know, this is fun. Let's do some more of this. And really, it led from there. So I did um, bingo deals, casinos, hotels, bowling. Um, so you were sex, sector agnostic at that point, and right at the forefront of of this these type of deals. Yeah. So so we did. We we, we sort of took a view that. This is something we're going to learn a lot about and we'll do a lot of deals in the sector. And we did. We did a lot of stuff there. And then I got into pubs, bars and restaurants and you realise it's so much more fun. I mean, it really is. I mean, I love bingo. Bingo is a fantastic business. And and bingo is still, of all the businesses I've ever been involved in, probably apart from McDonald's, the one with the best customer um, repeat business. So so our bingo business, which is called Ritz Bingo, which is run by a wonderful man called Brian Mathingley, who's now chairman of Playtag and has done amazingly well. Wonderful guy. So that business, um, our customer visit was 1.6 times a week. Wow. So okay. basically it was it was Coronation Street, it was Crossroads, it was East Enders. Yeah, they get, in, the they get into their routine, that demographic, they're Absolutely. in their routine. Absolutely. And they have their friendship. And basically. they are the most yeah. loyal customer you could possibly imagine until you screw them. And unfortunately, private equity started build big businesses within Bingo, and they basically rip the customer off, and eventually it's got to where it is now. Whereas it's still there, but it's nothing like what it was. It's a great shame because it's a wonderful business, and you see people trying to create young bingo, like um, 
dabbers and various other sort of bingo sort of lookalikes, which are sort of aimed at a younger audience. And, and they work because it's such a great, it's such a great business. I mean, it's such a great product. Mm. It's a brilliant thing. So anyway, so diverting, sorry, getting, getting distracted. That's no, fine. I still love it. Um, so, so I started to invest in businesses as well, around about late, uh, late nineties. And so over a long period of time, sorry, this is a long, long, long no, no, this, is, about this is great. Yeah. Carry on. Um, I went from having um, probably 80% of my time spent in M&A and 20% in investing to now probably 80 to 90% of my time in investing and only about 10 to 20% in, in M&A. And um, over a period of time, you, you start sitting on a lot of boards, you get involved with a lot of people, and you realize that actually, although you could never run, I, I could never run a business, I've never run, um, I, mean, I had my own M&A business for 20 years, but Frankly, it was me, and I worked either with investment banks or with lawyers or with sure, people. Or sure, sure, sure. But um, you can see enough from having been involved in a lot of businesses, both in terms of, of, of funding them from the point of view of the, I mean, I've been a lender, I've been in private Um So from from all of that, you bring something to the table there. But then just simply business common sense over a long period of time, you see a lot of things. And hopefully you can present, you can prevent people from making the same sort of mistakes. Yeah. That you've made. Mm-hmm. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've made a lot of investments that have gone wrong. Sadly, I still make investments that go wrong. You try and hope that when you make an investment goes wrong, it doesn't go wrong for the same reason that one of the other ones has gone wrong. Yeah. So, you, you know, making new mistakes isn't the worst thing in the world, but making the same mistake twice is a bit frustrating. Sure. So if you look back on that time when you were 25 or so, you're in yeah. the investment bank and you, I think you, you said you were the, the bag carrier almost. Yeah. That must have been an amazing experience learning off of all these people who had the level of experience at that time. You were just kind of absorbing all that at that time. Is that is that right? Yeah, I've had, I, I suppose over the years, I've had probably six bosses and five of them were fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And people who... Some of them I, I, I still know. Some I'd love to still know, but I, I don't. We lost touch over a long mm-hmm. period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and one absolute total words that can't be expressed. <laughs> and it's actually quite good to have one of those because then you realize it makes it pretty clear to you how good the other ones were. Yeah. yeah and that's I think not that's the right. worst thing. Well, as long as it's not for too long, it wasn't for too long. I think that's right. I think I think you have to experience having a good one and having a bad one to yeah. know what a good one looks like. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think that's right. And then... Looking back, if we go back a little bit further around your upbringing, family life when you were younger, did you know from an early age that finance, the world of finance, investment banking, um, M&A, was that always on the cards for you? Or was it something that you kind of fell into over over time? I, I, business was always going to be what I was going to do. And, and yeah. the reason for that is that you know my father left the army, I mean, he was only 19 at the end of the first world, uh, second, he killed me if I said that. He was only 19 at the end of the second world war. And when he got demogged, he and his brother um, started a business. And what was the business that they did? The, the business is, is a business that, that is now, after massive amount of iterations, called Black Arrow. And at 96, he still works. So wow. he still works. Okay, brilliant. So I was brought up in a business environment. And I, uh, I've got what, does, what does Black Arrow do? So now it's really um, a bit of property and small ticket leasing. Mm-hmm. So sometimes into the restaurant sector. So we have, you know, done small ticket leasing for restaurants that have gone wrong. And you kind of look at it and you go, gee, I should know better, really, <laughs> considering that, you know, I've, I've been, you know, spent so much time in the center. But yeah, so 
I think I think when you're brought up in that kind of environment, you kind of always expect that that's what you're going to do, and you rather enjoy it. And I was sort of being a bit sort of nerdy when I was young, sort of picking shares when I was actually very young, and you know, not actually investing them, but picking them and seeing how mm-hmm. they perform. Mm-hmm. So I've always been interested in it, and I think the time when I left university sort of early ages was the, the sort of the beginning of the explosion of the Gordon Gecko world, this whole yeah, yeah. Thatcherite era when actually suddenly finance became sexy because people could make loads of money. And it got a bit, it, it did definitely end up getting a bit ugly. And um, I think the moral compass disappeared at some point along the way. Yeah. I was lucky that, that, you know, I worked with some really wonderful people um, in, in actually some pretty good organizations. So from that point, by the time I left the city in 93, um, you know, I went and, and did my own thing. Sure. And when you when you left the city in 93, then that, that's a that point is, is a big decision for, for anybody to make at that point to leave the the comfort of the the big corporate environment that maybe you're in at that time to go and set up on your own. How did you feel about taking that leap? Um Okay, well, I mean, if I'm really honest, the reason that, that I, I mean, I, I, had a, I had a very bad illness when I was right. um, uh-huh. 31, I had a brain virus, uh, something called encephalitis. So, you know, it nearly killed me, it didn't, and I was very lucky I got away without any really bad, serious damage. And on the back of that, you kind of take a view, well, you know, I was, I was made a director of a merchant bank when I was 30, and the next great job is to run it, and that's going to take... I don't know, 20 years, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. took a view that, you know, I'm only here once, I might as well. Life's very short. And, and also, mm-hmm. I think, because I was specializing in, in leisure, it was my franchise world and the bank's franchise. So the bank wasn't really, you know, wasn't really involved in that. It was really sort of my franchise. So I thought, give it a go and see what happens. And I was very lucky that, I suppose, 94 to 2008 was a one-way ticket. And, and uh, when people talk about how brilliant they are in various parts of, of financing. Well, the truth is that from 94, well, 93, really, to 2008, things went in one direction. Interest rates went down, EBITDA multiples went up, businesses went through the roof, there was money around liquidity and all the rest of it, and that's how it all worked. So I suppose I was very fortunate to be in a situation where I was doing M&A, sort of 20 to 250 million pound deals in the leisure industry, and there's a lot of them around. Yeah. So yeah. it's fun. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and I, I think what you were talking about in terms of having that exposure almost by osmosis at a young age of being exposed to business discussions, probably around the dinner table, maybe, or just that, that's what happened to me as well. That's oh, my, really? my, yeah, about so it. my, my, yeah. my upbringing, really my, my mother and, and stepfather, um, ran a, a yachting, uh, Chandlery business, um, and really that all started off because my mum and, and, and dad split up when I was young, when I was about seven, and we had to sell our house. And the money, half of the money that my mum got from the house, um, she then had to find a job with, and she decided to go and, go and uh, purchase this chandlery business that was so that was completely That's fantastic. It was it was it was completely run down. And I remember we walked around it, and this thing had you know there's no stock in the place whatsoever, and it was on its knees. And she and I remember actually when she um, when she sold the house, she she made me hold the check. She said, "Here's the check." She said, "This is the biggest check that you're ever going to hold." 
and it oh, was wow. it was for thirty thousand pounds. You know, for a seven year old, yeah, in sort of God, you know, for amazing, nineteen eighty nine, something like that. That was that was extraordinary. And then she she took that money and she she invested it and and bought this this rundown shop. But did she know anything about business or about she knew, or She the 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 the, uh, the advice to only go into something that you know about <laughs> was 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 not was not some advice that my mum took. So they had only just got into boating yachting at that point they had no idea what they were doing and it was a it's a really specialized field so many different bits of kit um and i think for her knowing that this has to work that that this has to work i've invested my life savings in this thing i'm gonna have to learn about it i'm gonna have to drag this business through get it up to speed um and that's exactly what she did and um and so it was very much we were all in it on that journey with them to to turn that business around and they did it they did it and they uh, expanded it and they got it up that they uh, got it to four restaurants over a period of about uh, four chandleries over a period of about 10 years and it was at the time when the internet was just starting to get some get some um, some speed as well and, um, and and they took a lot of that chandlery online um, for an online shop and they made that work as well and they they built this they built this thing that was for them was extraordinarily successful and um for me being part of that around the dinner table seeing that's that day to day was that that's that's yeah. kind of my story and really uh, fr- from experiencing that from an early age for me it was i was always going to be in, I, w- I was always going to be involved in business in one, sh- one, one shape or form so did they sell the business or did they keep it they kept it they Brilliant. kept it they still have it now it's passed down to some of my other family members and, and they run it it's um they did try and sell it, and they they couldn't. It's very niche, and they couldn't ever find a buyer for it. But um, yeah, they ended up um, buying the actual boatyard that the Chandlery is in. They ended up um, opening another one over in Lanzarote as well. And they had they had wow. some real real good fun with it. I mean, it's all on a relatively small small scale. But um, what they did with it, it just kind of opened my eyes to that world of of potential and what you can do with something if you have that and determination so. it's very exciting isn't it? I mean when you get good businesses and you get good people I and mean, it all comes from the people when you get good people at the top and they inspire people and they, they give them the opportunity to develop themselves and to really yeah. go for it rather than be sort of you know the old command control approach that some of the big companies have got it, it's just fantastic to see it I mean Pilgrim is a great example to see, to see how that business has gone from literally from a market sort of where it is now and the evolution of the people, the evolution of the management, and the way you know, obviously, we brought in Gavin, who yeah. came in yeah. as a COO. How many are they up to now? How many sites they got? Oh, ask me that. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm going at 19. I might be wrong. I've okay. sort of it depends on whether you include the two um, satellite sites, which are um, in Swingers, which are sort of the slice. Because I remember, yeah, because they've got almost concessions in in those yeah. sites. Yeah, and it's a very. I mean, those are nice businesses for for Swingers. It's great. For us, it's great. It's not a big capital commitment. Makes a nice bit of money. Opportunity to train people up and, and develop them as well. So, um, yeah, and, and, and just watching um, the people evolve and people grow is, is fantastic. I mean, it's really been amazing to see how you go from literally making a phenomenally great pizza in a market store to end up, for, for James and, and Tom, sitting on top of a business where we've got well over 250 people, which is why I have to count it on a good menu. Yeah. More oh, amazing. yeah. 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 Fascinating. That is really interesting because um, it, I don't know about you, but as a customer, 
it has made me um, change some of the things I've, I've gone into places and not always something I would have ordered. The, the psychology behind putting uh, the calorie labels on the menu, we've, we've found that some people will look at it and they will almost go for the higher caloried <laughs> items. I.e., yeah. I'm I'm out here for a special yeah, occasion. I'm gonna I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna push the boat out, and I'm gonna go for the for the high calorie things because I'm here and I want to have fun. And other people are much more okay. I'm gonna take the low calorie option. We've we probably had a mixture of both. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm probably not the only person who's put on rather more weight than I'd like to have done in COVID. And it is quite interesting when you walk in and you find out that an egg and mushrooms is less than 100 calories. Someone's going to have your bread and butter yeah. with it. And you go, yeah. well, actually, that'll fill you up and keep you going. And actually, yeah. if you want to try and lose some weight, it's probably not the worst thing to do. Yeah. So from that point of view, the psychology is quite interesting. I, I, I was amazed to see that, sorry, it's going crazy easy, but that, that halloumi in, uh, in Brest, we want, was about the second or third highest calorific. Is that uh, right? Yeah, yeah, because it's, I don't know, it's sort of like, cheese whatever yeah it's incredible block of, block of cheese yeah. yeah i hadn't really thought about that yeah so but what we also found though was that you have to put the label the calorie labels on the food um, but you don't have to do it on the alcohol and everyone's just having alcohol with their food so yeah um the, explain the sense in that um it's very very bizarre i mean obviously the alcohol has got so it just blows all the calories in the food out of the water once you have yeah. once you have a few glasses of wine with with, with your meal yeah i mean it's well-meaning i suppose yeah um so I suppose um, moving on, you know, you touched on the number of different investments that you've made over the years. And I wouldn't like to hazard a guess at how many that is, but it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it seems, it seems looking at your um, background, it's, it's a lot. Um, are there any really that got away that you looked at that you look back on now and you think actually, yeah, I missed that one. Oh, loads. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I miss loads of things, and um, I don't know. Sometimes it might be the, the person who's running it. You just have a meeting with them, and maybe they're having a bad day, or you're having a bad day, and you look at it and you go, no, "I don't fancy it." But actually, six, seven years later, you look at it and you go, "God, how on earth could I have made that mistake?" And um, when you when you've done that, when you've gone back for a second look, or you've had another look at them, is it? Do you almost have a a bias there where you said? And first time round, no. So therefore, second time round, I won't look at this again. Or how do you, is that? Is that how do you kind of get around that? Have you ever invested in something the second time round that you missed the first time? Yes. Well, I wouldn't say I missed it the first time. I, I mean, meantime, I met um, Alistair Hook, who who's a fantastic guy, great guy, great brewer, really good product. But it was a big enterprise. It was a uh, the. the the place had been built to be a big business. And, what, and which, brewery, which brewery is this? This is Meantime. Uh -huh. So this was down in uh, sort of East London, I think. Yeah. And, and it, was a, it was set up to be a big business. And it was a big ask for, for someone who, who was really primarily a brewer. And I just, I just was very nervous about it. I thought that's a really big challenge. And then, then he was bright enough to bring in Nick Miller and talking about what we were saying earlier about how far can you go and Nick had um, made Peroni the number one premium mm -hmm. lager mm -hmm. in the UK yeah. and it is I think still the number one premium lager in the UK as a lager drinker is it the best lager in the UK I believe that to other people who decide, but <laughs> he did an amazing job and so he came in and 
With two of them together, it was a phenomenal combination. And he ended up selling the business for a price that no one in there, I mean, no one could believe what he got for that business. And, and he did a, a, a superb job. But that was kind of going back and having a look at it when you, when you had that combination, it suddenly all made sense and it seemed like it was going to be something special. Um, so it was, it was just the scale of it for you that you just thought he's bitten off too much, more than he can chew on this one, therefore. It's I, think it, I think it's about, is the team right for the, for the project? Is the team right for the business? And at that time, I felt um, it might be, but it's a big ask. And then when, mm-hmm. when Nick turned up, I thought, oh, this is, this is a great combination. It was just when craft beer was really taking off. Mm-hmm. If you looked mm-hmm. at all the stats on craft beer in the States, you could see that there was no reason why craft beer shouldn't succeed. So this would have been what, sort of 2017, 16? No, something way like earlier than that. It was sold then, but I think I think we invested, I don't, I don't know, uh, 2011 maybe, 2010, right. something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, but a, a very special, very special combination. And, and Nick's, I think now on the border of Young's, he's just written his book. I haven't read it yet. I might get it. But Do you he, know what it's called? Um, well, uh, all I can tell you is it's written by Nick Miller. So, um, but it's about his experiences, and it'd be really interesting because obviously he's worked with some terrific brands. In the meantime, the story is is superb. It's it's, uh, it's a really and it's a great beer. I think it's a great beer. It's called In the Meantime. In the by, meantime, well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? In the meantime, by Nick Miller, uh, available on Amazon. Yeah. There we go. It was a textbook. It was a textbook piece of execution, actually. Um, Great product, which then became a, a must-have product for a lot of people, and became one of the three big players in craft beer. And the big guys had to buy it; mm-hmm. they did. So, so hats off to. And it was it was so just to, just to be clear on that. So it was the change of the change of team dynamic that that kind of really next time around when you were looking at it, you thought, yeah, actually now this is all there, all the bits are in place. Yes, I, I think I think with with most businesses. I think businesses, as as they stand with their existing team, there's a pace that's right for that team. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose looking at that business, where they were trying to go, it looked like a big, big leap for the team as it was. But then you put Nick in there and you go, that makes perfect sense. And I'm saying this slightly with hindsight. You never yeah, really yeah, know it's going to be that good. And I suppose my biggest regret is I didn't put more money in. But there we go. You can say that. But hind- hindsight. Any, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I never, ever look back. I never say to myself, well, I look back to try and learn lessons from mistakes I've made. But actually, generally speaking, when something goes really, really well, you learn less from it than when it goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Which yeah. is a thing, lesson in life. Really. And how do you how do you now manage your time to 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 make sure that you you have enough time to to give to each of the investments that you're involved with, plus the the other business bits and pieces that you're involved with there's, there's a lot there there's a lot going on in, in in your world and how do you how do you kind of cut up your week to, to fit everything in in the right way i, I don't think i manage my time at all if I'm honest. <laughs> i think i used to manage it much better when i had a, an m&a business i was much more i think focused and driven and um and i wouldn't say i'm not driven now i mean I, i've just gone on, on the board of incipio Yes, I think so A, that, yeah. it's a really interesting That's recently, business. right? Last yeah, month, very, like, September the 6th, I think, is yeah. the date. So that's only a week ago. Yeah. Um, really interesting business, really interesting challenge, really at the forefront of, I think, some of the things that are going to happen in our industry that are going to be quite um, developmental. I think... Um, so in Sipio, I've got 
seven or eight different pubs well, around, it, the, around London. It's Is that not right? really. I mean, so if you take the Prince, for instance, the Prince was a uh, um, a spirit pub, which then became a Green King pub. Mm-hmm. It was um, in a place where there was supposedly going to be a massive amount of, um, of flats put up. And at the end of the day, there's only one block, I think, we've got down, maybe two blocks. And uh, as a result of that, uh, there wasn't much point putting a lot of effort into it from Green King's point of view. So um, Incipio came along and created this sort of meanwhile space which was between um, the development happening and it being a pub. And they got to a position where the, the, the numbers were spectacular. I mean, absolutely spectacular. We ran in Hippo. Um, so, so Rupert Cleveland founded Hippo and I was um, mm-hmm. his sort of junior partner in it. And um, you both, you're still involved in Hippo. You no, no, no. We, we sold Hippo oh, you sold uh, it. back to Stonegate at the start of the year. Oh, did you? Um, I didn't, I didn't and, see that. Uh, it, it seems to be going very well and, and the team seemed to be happy. So that's all good. So how many did you take that up to then? How many? Uh, Twelve. Twelve pubs, yeah, yeah, um, and um, seeing most of the people still in the business, uh, that's a good sign. Um, obviously, things are tough right now, but I'm sure in the long term there's some very, very good sites in there, so it'll be fine. But um, if, if you know, we were doing X in the Prince, oh, sorry, in in the Lily Langtree, and they were doing four X across the road. I mean, they were it was extraordinary. Wow. They were doing that site, and they still are. And so that that's the first thing that got me interested. And then I met Ed, who's the chief exec, who who's someone you really just enjoy spending time with. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very good at what he does. He has no limit to what he wants to do, um, and he's pushing the boundaries, doing things that other people aren't doing. Running those big spaces is very difficult, and at times they make it look quite easy, and it's definitely not that. Um, but if you look at it, it's it's like a it's almost like you've gone to somebody's party. It's a, it, you, you've gone there, you're getting entertained, you're having fun. And, and our industry is about entertainment, whether you're eating a great meal in a great place or you're going somewhere like that and there's a bit of sort of dancing and chatting and whatever else you want to do when you're on a night out. It's fun. Yeah. And they've absolutely It has to, it has to be fun. And I think uh, if you think of Be It One, that before it was, before it was sold to Stonegate, that had you know, what, what they managed to, to build there with the Be It One guys. <laughs> Yeah, um, a beer one was fantastic. We were lucky enough to advise um, the three founders on raising money from Piper. Yeah. And I've never, ever been involved in, a, in an m process that was that ridiculous. So It was a long, drawn-out process. Well, wasn't part it? of the reason it was a long, drawn-out process. And uh, I hope the three guys, I mean, if the three guys ever get to listen to this, and I'm not sure any reason why they would, but if they did, <laughs> they forced us to do a process where we would take one private equity firm around the business and then another one and then another one. And it would go, we would go from one site to another. It would be um, probably a cocktail and a shot in each site. And by the end of the evening, we'd all be so utterly pie-eyed that none of us knew what we were doing. None of us would really work out what the original purpose of the evening was, apart from obviously to make them love the business so much they had to invest in it. And eventually at the end of all of this, after endless amounts of, of alcohol and a lot of fun. And the three guys who found it were great fun. Um, Piper invested and they made uh, a very, very nice return over a, a reasonable period of time. And, and the three founders made a lot of money and at the end of it. It's a business with fantastic um, economics and at the heart, one driving USP that was magnificent. 
and that was their delivery of the product at the point of sale to their customer, in my view, is in a different lead to everybody else in the industry. Yeah, no, I agree. It was and, absolutely brilliant. And, and certainly that, that fun factor, they had that. I don't know how they bottled that up, but they managed to. They managed to roll out the fun factor and keep that. Um, yeah, but I think I think the way they went around serving people was, was, was very much part of it. If you think you've got a whole load of people trying to get a drink, and you might be standing next to someone of, uh, who, who you might might fancy of whatever persuasion they may or may not be, and yeah, you want to get your drink before they do. But then the barman will lean across and say, hi, I'm Joe, you're number one in the queue, you're number two in the queue. And at that point, all the pressure's off. You know you're going to get your drink. Yeah, yeah. So you start chatting to each other. And you watch it again and again and again. When there's suddenly that, that wonderful magic happens at the bar, where if you look at the fact, the only thing I really think is sad about our sector is that, is that you don't often get businesses where other t- different tables within an operation will start to chat to each other. Yeah, it's very silent. With restaurants, it's very silent. Yeah. Well, restaurants are completely silent. I've very, very, very seen a restaurant where that happens. But in pubs, pubs are a great place mm-hmm. for that to happen. And, and I think... If there's a trick which I think we, we've slightly lost, it's that ability to get people together. I, I, it's amazing how many people in the sector, if I mention the word Caspers to them, it means something. Mm-hmm. And Caspers had one site and it didn't last very long and yet everybody remembers and it. And where was it? I don't know. It's it was somewhere in the West End. I can't even remember where. But what it had that was amazing was that every table had a telephone. <laughs> and you you would give you, you had the numbers of other tables and what their phone number was and you could phone them and of course it was great fun and everybody did it and of course what happened as a result of that is you had lots of mixing and matching and, and it was just totally different to anything else and I'm not saying that one should bring Casper's back but <laughs> that kind of thing I, the only business I've seen that beginning to happen a bit is Vagabond so I'm a very small investor in Vagabond and if you watch Vagabond when um People are walking around to get their drink, and they choose their own drink. And they, they, they. When I was last in it, you had a cut. You, you, you got a vagabond card, but hopefully now there'll be apps, and that's the way mm-hmm. it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Whether it has or now, it has by now, and I don't know. But anyway, but but people are walking around as they're walking around. There'll be someone walking the other way who's got a glass, who's doing something, and that's an immediate reason to chat. You know, what did you have last time? Oh, I had that. You know, and suddenly juicy tables come here. So I went there with Brandon. Had to Brandon, and and we were just walking around doing all this, and then we started chatting to people, and then suddenly we found we, we had sort of three tables just sitting around having a chat, and that's <laughs> a lovely thing. Yes. I wish we yeah, did yeah. more of that in the set because yeah, yeah. that's proper socialising. There's something about meeting new people that's mm, always interesting and fun, right. isn't it? We're, we're, we're yeah, that's what we are as humans. We're yeah. inquisitive. Yeah. So coming back to the, the the variety of different investments over the years, if you had to pick one or or a top three or, or maybe just one that really stands out as that was that was that was an amazing business what's what's been your best one that you've been involved with well it's quite interesting because i've obviously started life as an advisor and when you're an advisor and you're employed by a company you have to do the best job you can and that generally means getting the best price you can and there's been a number of occasions where I've been sitting in a situation where we're selling to someone and you look at them and you think they don't really know what they're doing here and they're going to get it wrong. And mm-hmm. I can tell you a number of businesses that we've sold over the years, over 30 odd years, where 
you kind of sit in the completion meeting and you know they're going to go bust and they're going to make a mess of it. And that's really actually quite upsetting in some ways once you've become an investor in businesses because you realize that within that business there's loads of people who depend on that business for their livelihood. But the people who are buying it have overpaid and they're going to do something stupid. Mm -hmm. And without mm -hmm. going into names, there's a number of Yeah, sure, sure, sure. That's a shame. And I think, so when you become an investor, one of the things I think you want to do more than anything else is do a great deal at the end, but also you want that business to thrive. So of all the businesses I've been involved in, the best example, I think, by far, is probably Geronimo. And a lot of that is because of, of Rupert and Joe and the culture that they created in that business, which was, was tremendous. And with Ed Turner, who I've given a lot yeah. of credit to for that as well. And so when we sold that business, on the day we sold it, we got a price which was fantastic for us. Brilliant. So that ticks that box. But it was a phenomenally great business for them. And because Steve Goodyear is one of the most cunning people in our sector, he knew exactly how to keep Rupert and Patrick separate but sort of lightly competitive, not in a nasty way, but in a really good way. And what happened was when we sold that business, I think we had 26 pubs, Young's had over 200. And I think we were four or 5% like for like growth and they were 0.8%, pretty much flatlining. Within a year or two, AR business delivered the numbers that we said it would deliver. I think when we sold it, it was making about eight. And within two or three years, it was making a heck of a lot more than that without talking about numbers uh, specifically. But what happened was the whole business raised. I think if you look at Young's as a pub group in London now, they've been absolutely superb at investing in the product. Now, as a result of having spent a lot of money on the pubs, they have pushed price quite hard, but I think their customers are happy with what they're getting. And so um, it, it's been a textbook lesson of how a smaller business with a slightly different type of way of doing things can actually impact well and positively on a bigger business and everybody rises. And so I can go into, into, into Young's Pub or Geronimo Pub as was 12, 13 years, or 13 years later now. Yeah. When, when and I, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. When I think of those Geronimo pubs from 13 years ago, 14 years ago, when I first kind of got to London, I think about maybe the Fentiman Arms that was in oh, Vauxhall. By the Oval. Yeah, yeah by the yeah. Oval. What, and just what a great pub that was at that time. Just... Yeah. What they managed to do in terms, you know, we were talking about socialising and the various things that they had going on, quiz nights or whatever else. But they, you know, they had the, the board games and they had just had all of that stuff. And the, I think they had the fire and they just made it cosy. And it's just, it was just a lovely place to yeah. to be. It was like bringing the country pub into London. Yes. And they did that yes. brilliantly. Joe's design, still fantastic. And but from an investing point of view, the fact that actually when we sold, I think we had 26 pubs. And now you look at how that whole business is. It's a great business and it's definitely um, been helped a little bit by buying Geronimo. Maybe a lot, but definitely a little bit. Yeah. And so from, yeah. from every aspect, I think the best deals are the ones where on the day you sell it, you've got a great price. And that's brilliant. Wonderful. Ticks that box. But then you can look at it 10 years later. It's still a great business. So if I look at um, Pilgrims, and if I look at uh, now, obviously in, in Scipio, it would be wonderful to be able to replicate something like that. Where, where for the shareholders, we do a deal that's fantastic, but for the staff, they've got a great career going forward. And 10 years later, the business is still going to be great. That would be those are the best deals you can do, yeah, yeah, sure. And you, and you do see this a lot where smaller businesses get acquired by larger ones, and then 
the larger business can't help but tinker with it and they and they they tinker around the edges initially and they tinker a bit more and before you know it they've, they've taken away the the very thing that they acquired in the first place We've, i've seen that quite a lot i think that's right well, the reason i would say that that's that see good you was so clever was that the, the contract said that Rupert had to stay in the business for two years. Um, so all the money was paid out on day one, but he had to stay for two years. Five years, six years later, he was still there because Steve found a way in which he was enjoying himself. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, that's the key, that's the and key so, isn't it? you know, that business managed to get some of the, the, sort of the Rupert magic dust for a lot longer than, than the contract said they had a right to. And that's great management. So, yeah. so that's yeah. sort of... It's a big lesson for other people, I think, that how to how to run an acquisition. Because yes, of course, you can come in, you can take cost out, you can degrade the product, you can do all sorts of things. But actually, if you bought it because it's special, for goodness' sake, try and make it stay special. Yeah, I think it's a really good point on that sort of earnout point where most founders at that point would be just counting down the days, yeah. almost counting down the two years or the three years until they can get the money and then they can go. Whereas it's very unusual that people will then want to stay on after that. So keeping that keeping that relationship going is really key. Well, effectively getting your value for money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So over the over the years, you, you've brokered a number of um, acquisitions, Lockfine to Green King, New World Trade Co to Graphite, Toronto Motor Youngs, to name a few. How do you how do you broker these deals and how do you secure them? And what's the what's the technique that you use? Is there how do these kind of leads come about? And you know, what's the what's the what's the magic there? What's the secret sauce? Well, so, some of it is is um, you pitch against other banks for for a mandate. So I've I've since I stopped working full-time in MA. I've been a senior advisor at various places and we pitch against other people for sale mandate. So something like um, New World would, would fit that. But but something like Green King or, or Cafe Uno for Paramount are different. You, the, the, the benefit of being entrenched in the sector is that A, you have a lot of market intelligence about what's going on and what people want to do. Yeah, sure. And sure. B, you have a good understanding of where assets might come loose and might be available. So if you take um, uh, Green King Lock Five, for instance, I mean Rooney, I, I would like it to think that he and I are good personal friends. And, and uh, apart from on the golf course, obviously, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> he seems to take my money rather too often. He, so I've known Rooney since um, the, man, uh, the the public and golf tours of the early nineties, mm-hmm. which were legendary events um, where what stayed on tour, what went on tour, stayed on tour. And there was a lot of lot of alcohol involved, unfortunately. Um, just after um, and so we became good friends and I spent a lot of time with him I understood more and more about what he wanted to do with Green King and one of the things that he wanted to do at one point in Green King was develop more food skills and develop more of maybe a restaurant type of business which maybe over a period of time could have skills that would navigate across to his business mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and as a result of that and, and knowing Mark and the shareholders in Lot 5 and knowing that they were coming up to a point where they were thinking of an exit um, you know, I was more by luck than anything else able to, to do a deal that was completely off market at a price that the shareholders were very happy at and that Rooney was very happy at. And the one thing I would say that I would say publicly about Rooney that everybody should know is that when he shakes hands on a deal at a price, he would stick to it, mm-hmm. which is a very important thing. So it was, he doesn't, he doesn't play silly games, which some people do. 
Sure. So, so for that example, that was a case of right place, right time. Sure. But also that that huge network that you have kind of coming together and you've been able to leverage off that almost. Yeah, and it was a different deal. I mean, I don't think people, would, well, nobody saw it coming. It, it, it didn't get leaked until the day it was announced. And I think it, it was unlucky from his point of view because of the, the timing, because the recession came pretty hard soon after mm-hmm. that. So it was a 2007 deal. And obviously, 2008, 2009, things started to fall apart in the world, in the broader world we live in. And so I think a lot of the logic for it made sense. And a lot of people now will say with hindsight, well, it's not fine. Okay, it's easy to say that. But actually, um, there were a lot of things about it that over a period of time, if it had had a smooth runway and not that kind of market environment, could have had a lot. Because nine of the 36 sites anyway were ex-pass. So you could argue that, that actually... It, it, in the right environment, it could have been very interesting. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, and then part of being a successful investor has been able to, I guess, look forward and see what's coming down the track. And what do you think it looks like for UK consumer-facing businesses at the moment? What's your outlook? Well, I think I think you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that we are facing a bit of a bit of a storm where um, both sides, supply and demand, are going to get are get squeezed. So obviously, on the one hand, the consumer's coming under pressure, the, the, even if we um, have a government sort of helping on electricity bills for individuals. There's so many other things going on that are causing massive inflation. Mm-hmm. The consumer spend is going to come under pressure. So we all know that, and we, all, we can all see that coming. Um, on, on our side, obviously, we're placing employment issues, cost issues, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that. So, so that's, that's a given. Um, generally speaking, what happens in tough times is the best opportunities to invest arise. And that is a statement of fact over a long period of time. You don't have, uh, if you have a very buoyant market, you get lots of people doing stupid things like pushing rents up and everybody rises and then at the end of it, everybody, you know, a lot of people fall off the cliff. Yep. So I think what we generally see is that when it gets really tough, you see the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. What dear old Warren Buffett has always said mm-hmm. when the tide goes out, and he is a genius, and, and we all have to go our caps him because he is still the greatest. Um, he is the Muhammad Ali of investing. Um, so I suppose I'm sitting slightly on the fence. So when you say, what do I do all day? It, it is true, I'm probably paying too much gold, but I'm probably having too much holiday, because actually, <laughs> apart from going into Incipio, which might be a brave move, but I don't think, I think it's gonna be a, very exciting and a lot of fun. Um, I'm waiting because I think next year there's going to be some real big seismic shifts. And I think if you look at what happened in health and fitness, in health and fitness, um, we had all manner of health and fitness businesses. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of it, we had LA Fitness, we had Fitness First, we had all these businesses that were neither value plays nor were they premium plays. And they all got wiped out. Yeah. And I think in our sector, we won't get quite as dramatic as that, but I think a lot of the mid-market will get will get wasted. And to be honest, is it a good enough product? Should people be making a 75% gross margin out of an ordinary product? I'm not sure they should. And I think we'll get we'll get found out on this. And the CBAs that we spoke about earlier have kept a number of them alive that shouldn't be. So I'm pretty brutal about the way I look at a market that I think some of these people maybe shouldn't be in it. And, mm-hmm. and, and actually, if they go away, and some of that market that is, is sucked up in a Tunbridge Wells by ordinary businesses 
becomes available for better, better operators. The better operators get a chance to invest more in their business, make their product even better. The customers get a better offer. Happy days, everyone's going to be in a better place. So I, I think, although it's very sad, um, I do think that, that, that what happens in this kind of environment is the cream rises to the top. I think one of the other things that's going to happen, I think, I think this is, I think this could potentially be a really seismic shift, is the relationship between landlords and tenants has been an uncomfortable relationship for a very long period of time. Um, upward only rents, um, a sort of, I'm not saying it's a master of certain relationship, but it's quite a difficult relationship yeah. in, in certain situations. And COVID hasn't helped with that as well, some of that. Definitely hasn't helped with that. But I think we're beginning to see landlords looking at the best operators and saying, is there a way in which this can become more of a partnership where actually we all benefit? So I'll get more rent because frankly, if the business turns over twice as much as an ordinary business would in that size, there's enough for everybody to benefit. Yeah. And we all know in our game is that you know, there's so much operational gear that once you get past a certain point, there's just loads of profit. And frankly, if we have to give some of it away to a yeah, landlord, so this is the turnover, what's the problem? This is the turnover rent mechanism. I think it goes further than that. I, I think we will eventually see um, landlords investing in some of these businesses. And I think you, you just need to look at um, Grosvenor. Grover is a massive multi multi billion pound business, and they've got a little fighting fund. It's very small by comparison with what they do, but it's a start. It's a sort of you know we might just try and do a bit here and a bit there. See if you see the right guys, and they end up building an amazing business, and you were in there right at the start, um, renting them a property. Wouldn't it be nice if you had ten percent of it? Mm. So I think mm. I think some of the some of the landlords, I think some of the more um, visionary players in the market and there are some amazing players in the property market because if you think about it it's all very well to talk about it from our perspective but when you put a hole in the ground and start digging you've already spent god knows how long to get there and you're going to spend a lot of time to get to the other end you've got to be seriously brave because the cycle can get you at any point so you've taken really really brave long-term decisions so they they know how to do that so kind of there's a bit of me that thinks that if they if they spot and they have a develop a mechanism so that they can work out who the good guys are, why wouldn't you invest them? So I think we could see some real changes there, which would be great, because that, again, would only happen with a really good operator. So it would mean that instead of going for a site and competing with five or six other operators for it, if they actually feel, well, actually, these are people I want to get behind, um, forget about whether I can get five grand more a week from somebody else or whatever, five grand more a month or whatever. Um, I'll back them. That could be very interesting. Mm. So that would be really, really great that because then I think you'd see much more of an alignment of interest, which has to be good for business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Makes a lot of sense. And um, moving on, how do you, what, what does the future look like for you, Ian? What does it, what does the next five, 10 years look like? And how do you measure, how do you measure success? What, what, what keeps you going? It's exactly what my wife asked me the other day, and uh, I don't think the answer was the right one. Um, <laughs> I suppose, um, what do I want to do? I definitely want to do more of the same. Uh, it's very, it's it's as beneficial for me as it is for anybody I'm working with. If I'm, I'm you know, unfortunately, um, the day before yesterday, I turned, which year are we in now? 2023. 
So that's congratulations. That's, no, it's not. No, congratulations when you get to thirty. When you get to sixty-three, <laughs> there's no congratulations. There's nothing good about being sixty-three. <laughs> but it's still a lot of fun, and so long as I can enjoy what I'm doing and work with primarily people who are much younger than me, who are guys with amazing energy, and and and, and the other great thing actually in this sector is is particularly in dining and, and the restaurant sector is there's been an explosion of brilliant women who who mm-hmm. run these businesses and who've done some fantastic things from you know Nisha who when we talked about yeah. last yeah. time I was lucky I had dinner with um, Jane Ridden and uh, and Al Murdoch. and Jane you know I, I mean some of the businesses that she's chairing are terrific businesses absolutely fantastic so you've got you've got lots of people doing amazing things so even in this market where we're all talking about how terrible it is you pick up propeller in the morning there's another 10 10 restaurant openings yeah or bar openings. yeah it's it's yeah. that's what's so exciting about it. that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is that you can you don't know everybody and you can meet people and you think i really want to work with this person because it's just they're just terrific and what they're trying to do is really special and different and that's what gets you gets you going and obviously if as a result of that you put some money in, you, you maybe get some equity and, and whatever. As a result of that, you make a good investment, make some money. That's great. That's really nice. No one's turning that down. But it's a byproduct of the journey. The journey is the fun. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I look at, at, say, pilgrims, and I'd say I'd like the journey to go on for as long as it can go on because it's, it's great. Why wouldn't I? Just Rather so than thinking, to be God, I'd like to sell my shares tomorrow and make those money. So that's probably the wrong that's probably the wrong thing to say, but it, it is about the enjoyment of it, and also seeing people you're working with who, when they start, you know, have a, have have something, you know, one or two sites, whatever, and down here, and then at the end, they become, you know, industry leaders, and and have even at that point, you know, if, if Tom and James sold in the next five years, they'd still be less than forty. Mm-hmm. And you think they've got all that time ahead to do loads of other things? Yeah, they will, sure. whatever they do do something interesting uh, that's pretty motivating but is that enough i don't know i mean I'm, I'm still trying to play um play sport which is a bit sad really but you've got to keep trying yeah well that's what i was going to ask when you're not when you're not working when you're trying to unwind obviously and you spend a bit of time on the golf course what else you, what else do you like to do uh well obviously obviously golf is particularly now i've i've i uh, i videoed my swing the other day and i compared it with rory mcelroy and it'd be fair to say there's as well, there are a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, so, I think, I think lots most, of opportunity. I think lots most, of opportunity. Most people comparing their swing to McElroy. Yeah, there's, but that's good. That's good. There's lots, lots of lots of things you can do. I'm still playing cricket badly. Um, play a bit of tennis. I, I traveling is the best thing. I mean, um, if I can be an advert for the Scottish Tourist Board, um, which I know has nothing to do with our podcast at all. No, that's fine. Anyway. It, it we does. just took my um, wife. I took the two dogs up to Scotland and did the North Coast 500. And I cannot recommend it enough. It was absolutely fantastic. We had 1,750 miles in eight days, and we never felt like we were driving the wrong way. It was just beautiful. It absolutely is. It is. Uh, I um, I, I cycled. I did the lands. Uh, John Grace the lands end. Seriously. Yeah. Well, that's proper stuff. Yeah. I, well, wow. not recently. I did this some time ago. But the thing that struck me about doing that, well, we we did it in ten days. So we're doing uh, it's 909 miles, and we did it in ten days, and. The thing that struck me was just how vast Scotland is. It yeah. took, I think it took us six or seven days to get out of Scotland. Actually, England was a doddle by the time we got out of Scotland. But what a beautiful country. And yeah, 
it, I agree with you. It's, there's lots to see there. You think you've gone a long way when you go from the south of Scotland to Inverness, and then you look up and you go, oh, oh hardly even touched Yeah, haven't even touched it. No, I know. Beautiful. Um, great. I think as, as we come towards the, the end of the show, is there any any final thoughts that you would like to close the show on? No, no problem if not. Um well, I, I would, I would, I would like to say, hey, thank you very much. Really, I, what, I mean, I, I hate. I, I must be honest. I know I, people say I talk too much. I probably do. But I don't really <laughs> like talking about myself. It's just, um, but it's been fun. It's been very easy. To it do has. It. You've it been has. very good at the way you've, uh, you've sort of prodded me and, and got me talking about all sorts of drivel. Um, look, you're you're working up for a long business. I mean, I think you know. I look at our sector. There are certain parts of the sector. That you think have got great longevity. I think you know good pizza businesses, good businesses in the Asian area, um, the pub sector. There is so much more to be done. I I cannot tell you the, the pub is the brand. The pub is a thousand year old brand. There is no brand in the world that touches the pub. And yet, if I'm honest, the level of innovation in the pub sector over the last fifty years has been pretty minimal, not mm-hmm. nearly as much as it should be. I think hopefully there will be more people like Rupert coming into the sector who will do more exciting things in the pub sector. It's not the easiest place to work because the ownership structure doesn't really help. Yeah, sure. But um, I think there's loads to be done in that sector. And, and overall, I'm massively positive, uh, even about the fact that I'm 63. I just think as long as I can keep on doing good things with good people and having a lot of fun doing it, the byproduct will be uh, will be successful. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like you got quite a few more years as well going if you, if you keep going anywhere near like your dad and would you say he was 90, 96 still plays golf that's extraordinary still, play, play golf. still goes to Chelsea does he yeah so that's been quite worrying actually so uh, there is a chance he might actually have to play because the way things are at the moment <laughs> as a Chelsea fan it's not looking good but there we are that's, that's, that's not something we want to get if we get into just, football this could just, last six yeah, hours it could, it could, that's, that's a whole yeah. other who's your team uh, Arsenal Okay, so well, are, I think um, now we're finished. That, that's yeah, probably the end yeah, of it. Because exactly. we're at opposite ends of the table here. Exactly. It's not going to last with Arsenal. It's not going to last. But No, uh, he's good. He's very good. I think with, with Chelsea, you've just had so much success, this little blip. Um, it, you'll get over it. Yeah, I, I hope this guy's good because it would be, lo- be a lovely story if they pick this guy and he goes from running Brighton to running Chelsea and winning yeah. that stuff because yeah. he's a good guy. I agree. And then, then if there's one last thing, um, if I can ask you, if, if you could... Put something on a poster or a billboard, uh, a one-liner for people to take away from the podcast, or if you want to think of it differently, if you could send out a mass text message and one-liner or whatever it might be, is that is there something that comes to mind that you think is really worth sharing? No problem again, if not. I think do the right thing. Don't take shortcuts. Be ethical. Um, treat people the way you'd like them to treat you. I think those sort of things... And, and use loads of common sense. Yeah. Business isn't rocket science. It is common sense. I, um, I, I think that's... All of those things. I, I think do the right thing. I think that's absolutely right. And the amount of times where if you... It almost, it's almost calmer, isn't it? If, you, if you're working in the right way, work, making the right decisions for people and everyone around you and doing everything in the right way, it, it kind of comes back in spades as well. I think that's definitely right. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And I think this sector has got loads and loads of really, really good people who do the right thing every day, who lead businesses well. And I would have a last plug for Kate. I think Kate has done a phenomenal job in trying to navigate. This is Kate Nichols. Kate Nichols the most ridiculously difficult 
mm-hmm. set of circumstances mm-hmm. with a calm head so without it getting can, it emotional. Couldn't be, and, it couldn't be any harder. I mean, if you think about the pandemic into the energy crisis. And it's, it's really not a time to turn around and slag the government off because, frankly, if you want something out of someone, it's not the most clever way of trying to do it. I think in all the discussions, in all the public stuff she puts out, it's very sensible, it's thought through, and I think it has much more chance of getting the right response. So hats off to, hats off to the industry and well, Ian, thank you, thank you so much for this. I've I've really really enjoyed it. There's How this, long have we been talking? About? I, I don't I don't it's even know. It's a long so, time. Some time. Oh, sorry about that. Um, no, it's that's absolutely what this is for. Oh, and well. there's so much content there. There's so much information. There's so much that I've learned from from talking to you just in this past hour, hour and a half, however long we've been going for. And I'm sure there's a whole load more that um, maybe there's well, a round two fun. somewhere down Good the line. Fun. But, Good fun. Um, Great fun. Thanks very much. Thanks. Pleasure. Cheers. Bye.